Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sailorville Church and our, uh, our live uh, virtual service here. Who is like the Lord? Uh, I love that song, love singing. I hope you, I hope you were able to sing it uh, in your home or your car, wherever you're at here this morning. Who is like the Lord? Uh, the Bible says the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. Can you think of a more cataclysmic time this world has ever known than when God inundated it with the flood? And yet the rest of that same verse in Psalm 29 verse 10 says, the Lord sits as king forever. So no matter what's happening in this chaotic world that we're living in, God is where he has always been on the throne. May that be a great comfort to you this morning. As we enter into the word of God, and if you have Bibles with you, I invite you to get them and find 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and we're going to pick it up in verse 9 in just a little bit. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. We certainly did, even though all 50-some of us in our family had to cluster, and we actually made a lot of visits over several days to catch up on most of our kids. Uh, it took up most of the weekend, actually. And, uh, and to, truth to tell, even as Thanksgiving was approaching, this was a, a very emotional time, for I'm sure, for all of us, for you, certainly was for my wife. We, we look forward to this time, we gathering all the kids together in one place. We don't get to do that as often as we used to. So not being able to do that was, was a heavy for us, as I'm sure it was uh, for a number of you. Because we are passionate about our family, and I trust you're passionate about your family. We're passionate about our church family, and our church family coming together, actually, literally, physically. And we hope within a couple of weeks, that's exactly what we'll be doing again. So thank you for bearing with us uh, during this time. Uh, speaking of being passionate, as I was thinking about this passage that I'm preaching on today, I, I couldn't help but uh, think of, uh, of a time I walked into a church one day. There was a, it was a, a pastor who had just come to the church. He'd been 16 years at another church. He was moving into our area. I just was in there to welcome him. He was an older gentleman, and I wanted to uh, thank him for coming, ask him if I could pray for him. And in, I was a newer pastor in those days, so I asked him, I said, what, you know, what was the impetus for you leaving the one church and coming to this one. And, and truthfully, I was expecting all kinds of things to you know, come into his, uh, uh, you know, come from his mouth, like a sense of a new challenge, the Lord's leading, something happened, happening in that other church, some life circumstance. But I will never forget the words that came out of this gentleman's life. He said, well, I was there for 16 years and I just ran out of stuff to say. <laughs> I could hardly believe it. I could, I mean, I must have looked like the proverbial, you know, deer in the headlights at the moment. I mean, how do you, how do you run out of stuff to say when you have the word of God? Now, I didn't rebuke him in that moment. I was just sort of shell-shocked by the whole thing. But I sensed that he'd lost his edge. He was sort of coasting. He'd lost his passion, his drive. He was sort of just looking for a place to land and settle. It was very sad to me. You know, over the years... One thing that I've noticed as a, as a former athlete is that the, 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 the thing that separates the good athletes from the great athletes is the great athletes are never satisfied with where they're at. They always want to get better. And I realize that with analytics today, with all you sports enthusiasts, you know, with, with, with uh, analytics, we turn today's athletes into statisticians and uh, scientists even in some, in some ways. Nevertheless, good, good ones becoming great ones, that is, athletes, uh, is, is more than just genetics 
and technology. It requires a disciplined life, a driven life to get better and better and better at what you're doing. Better, mind you, at what you do best. That's why I love this passage that we are, we, we're on when we pick it up in verse 9 here in a few moments. It was studying this passage many years ago on my own for my own personal devotion that the Lord sort of impressed me with this thought. God wants me to do better at what I do best. He wants me to do better at what I do best. Now that line you're looking at here assumes something. It, it, it sort of assumes that I'm already or you're already excelling at something. And that's probably true. You're really good at something. If, if you're in the Christian, if you're a Christian living the Christian life, you have been gifted by God and uh, hopefully you are enhancing that gift. That is, you're, 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 you're leaning toward it. You want to improve in it, get better at it, serving the Lord and serving his church. And if I'm striving to be more like Jesus, and that's our mantra here, more people, more like Jesus, then my efforts to become more conformed to his image are never going to cease. Paul, the Apostle Paul, that has loved the Thessalonian church, this epistle, this letter that he has written, that we are studying. He loved this church. We've been talking about it. He just, he was just, this church was just going gangbusters for Jesus, and they were very, very young. And what he has to say in these verses that we're going to look at here in a moment are both in very encouraging and also very challenging. Challenging to them, challenging to us, because... In the end, some of them within the church and some of us need a good kick in the pants, spiritually speaking. You know, Jesus once said, he who is of God hears or listens to God's words. Listen, take that in again. He who is of God listens to God's words. Are you listening today? If you're not a Christian and you've joined us today, you're just listening in. Uh, consider this sort of an invite. We're sort of pulling back the curtain and letting you sort of into the church and into its own struggles. As this is a real message to, the, to those who are genuine Christ followers, or at least claim to be. And if you're not a Christ follower, we, we want you to see how, um, just from this passage, how amazingly relevant and contemporary the Bible is. Speaking to every age, every dispensation, every moment in time, including this time in which we are living during this COVID-19 pandemic. So, and hopefully, having looked in, you'll want to you get in. You'll want to be a part of this. That's my prayer. That's my hope for you. So that said, we're picking it up in chapter 4 and verse 9 where we read, Now considering brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. To love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That Think Macedonia. Think uh, the northern uh, central portion of modern day Greece. Now watch this. But we urge you brothers to do so more and more. Did you catch that? They're already good at loving people. And yet Paul says, I want you to do better at what you do best. I want you to get better at it. And then verse 11, and aspire to live, a, to live quietly and to mind your own business, mind your own affairs. 
to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before, watch it, outsiders and be dependent on no one. God wants us to do better at what we do best. And this, this morning is a, a Christian call to get better at what we do best. And so there's just really two things I want to talk to you about today from this passage in the Christian call to get better at what we do best in our pursuit of loving insiders. That's the first thing. We need to get better in our pursuit of loving the insiders. Now, the insiders I'm referring to are fellow Christians, or so-called. Uh, the church, the insiders, people who know Jesus. Would you notice at the very beginning of verse 9, it says, Now, now concerning, see that there? Now, in, some, in fact, another NIV says, about your love for the brethren. Uh, the CSB says, about brotherly love. If, if you're thinking with me, you'll, 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 you'll catch the fact that You'll catch the drift that Paul is actually answering a question that has come to him in one way or another, probably through Timothy. He's answering a question. In fact, there's another one coming up in verse 13. He says, and we thank God constantly for you when you receive the word which you heard from us. I'm sorry, that's in chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 13, rather. says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And then he goes on to talk about the return of Jesus. And chapter Five, he does something very similar. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. The point is he's, he's answering questions. I mean, if you look at the Gospels, you, you, you see Peter. Peter's always asking questions. A lot of them are kind of dumb, but he does ask questions, a lot of them. And, and if you look at 1 Corinthians, that book which, which has been such a value to the church down through the centuries is virtually a Q&A session between Paul and the Corinthians, asking and, and then answering questions that were coming to him. A fair chunk in the New Testament is really like this. That's why I love, personally, I love working with unbelievers. Some of you that are watching, perhaps, are not Christians, but you, you got questions. I love working with unbelievers. I love week, working with new uh, believers who are just filled with questions. I'm working with several of them right now. And, of course, I love working with inquisitive believers who are all, always asking questions. That's how we grow. We ask questions, we get answers. Several months ago, a young Christian woman uh, that lives in our neighborhood uh, sent me a theological question, and then she sent me another a little bit later. And I realized... In the middle of it, I thought, I, I've answered these questions before from others over the years. And I really should be compiling these things so that I can give them out uh, more readily when they come. So that is exactly what I did. I actually thanked this young Christian woman because she, she got me to finally start to compile all these questions that come my way so that I could give answers. The question that these Thessalonians are asking is in regards to love. See what he says? Now regarding brotherly love. Not just love, but brotherly love. That's one word in the Greek New Testament, and it's, it's literally the word Philadelphia. <laughs> just like the city of brotherly love. That's exactly what the word means. It means to love. Phileo, that means to love. It's a reciprocal kind of a love. It's a family kind of love. And the brothers, so it's, it's specifically taking us into a home or into close relationships where we love one another. 
This word is used 19 times in this epistle alone. So it's a big deal. But if you'll notice at the end of verse 9, he says, uh, he says you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's not the word Philadelphia. That's the word agape. So now Paul, they're, they're asking about Philadelphia, brotherly love. Paul takes them to a much deeper, much greater, much more significant love, and a much more familiar one by way of a term. This is the word agape. Whereas phileo love or philos love is reciprocal, agape love is unconditional. It's the God so loved the world kind of love. And not all that was going on in Thessalonica was, un, you know, all the loving that is was, was unconditional. It would take unconditional love to love those who were struggling with sexual immorality. If you've been with us in the series, you know in the first several verses of chapter 4, he's dealing with those who were still struggling with immorality. And it would, it would take not philos or phileo love, it would take agape love to love somebody who was struggling with immorality. It would take agape love to love somebody struggling with laziness. He's going to address that here and repeatedly. It would take agape love to love somebody with a weak kind of faith. He's going to talk about that in chapter 5. So this church was a normal church. It had, it, had, it had superstars. It had guys who were just rocking it and gals that were rocking it for Jesus. And it had, it had guys and gals that were struggling on various levels. And when, when, I, when I talk about needing, from an insider perspective, pursuing love with insiders, I'm not saying turn a blind eye to their sins, be it immorality, be it laziness, be it weak in the faith, being faithlessness, being worldliness, whatever it is. I, the Bible isn't telling us to turn a blind eye. It's just telling us to love them with a God kind of love. After all, it was the kind of love that was presented to you when you trusted Jesus. And here's the point. Um, phileo love or philos love, as great as it is, is a reciprocal love. It's a love that says, I love you because you love me. You love me because I love you. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of love and a necessary one, I might add. But it would not get the job done when it comes to loving insiders, especially those who are struggling in their walk with God. And if you'll notice, Paul says in verse 9, Brethren, you were taught by God. Did you see that expression? Taught by God. That is actually a direct allusion to Isaiah 54, verse 13, where the future kingdom is in play there when Jesus reigns. And in Isaiah 54, Isaiah, the prophet, is telling us that people in those days that are still future will not need human teachers. They'll be taught, quote-unquote, taught by the Lord. Now, it doesn't say here, you have been Look at it again, verse 9. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone write you, for you yourselves have been... Now notice, he doesn't say you've been taught by Reverend Wonderful. Okay? I mean, everybody seems to have one of those, you know. He's the pastor who can do no wrong. He was the greatest preacher. He was the greatest evangelist. He was the most loving guy. But it really doesn't matter how... No matter how faithful your pastor was or is are articulate, Holy Spirit-filled, powerful in his preaching. In Paul's mind, truth received ultimately comes from God. 
We're just the conduits, and that makes me dispensable. I hate saying that, but it's true. And please don't miss the very end of verse 10, because Paul is commending them. Man, when you talk about brotherly love, you guys have got it. You're loving people. It's, it's, actually, being, it's actually extending itself throughout Macedonia, so it was diffusing itself into the, the Grecian peninsula. But what he says at the end of verse 10 is where I got this expression the Lord gave me many years ago. He says, do this more and more. See that? So he's not saying, man, you guys are loving and just be satisfied. Be warm, be filled. (laughs) No, he says, get better at it. Get better at it. It's true. God wants me to do better at what I do best. For instance, I'm a soul winner. I, I, almost since the day I became a Christian 30-some years ago, God has given me this ability to be able to communicate with people and to lead some to Jesus from time to time. It's a great joy. It's a great privilege. It's a gift. I didn't conjure it up on my own. I get it. It's a responsibility. It's a, it's a stewardship that God has given me. He doesn't give it to everybody, though he does give all Christians the responsibility of witnessing. Well, I, I came here to Sailorville, 20-some years ago, and about a year or two after I came here, along comes a guy by the name of Chuck DeClean. He's a household, he's a household name in this church, although he's now a part of one of our church plants. Now, Chuck was a soul winner. I'm a soul winner. But let me tell you something. I sat at the feet, and still do to some degree, with Chuck DeClean. I realized hanging out with him, I not only wanted to become a better soul winner, Hanging out with him, I learned that I needed to become a better soul winner. There are so many things. There were so many things, and still are, things that I have to learn. God wants me to do better. He wants you to do better at what you do best. So what had God taught these Thessalonians? Already, he's, he's telling us God has taught you, and the answer is how to love. Love as one writer put it, is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Jesus said it best, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I loved you, so you ought to love one another. And then he said these powerful words. By this shall all men know you're my followers, you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Notice what kind of men? All men insiders and outsiders, which we're about ready to talk to here in just about in a moment. People are watching. This is what Jesus was saying. By this, by what? By your love for one another. All men are going to see that you're my disciples. An expression that was heard during the first century from unbelievers on the outside was this. See how they love one another. This was Unheard of. In fact, the, the word we're so familiar with, agape love, that unconditional kind of love we're talking about here, that, was, that word wasn't even in the, vo- in the vocabulary of first century people. So this was much less the expression of unconditional love. How powerful that had to be to first century unbelievers. So what does loving, agape love of the brethren look like today in our environment? What's it look like? Well, if we use the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, as our template, we're not going to go there, but I'm going to just allude to a couple of expressions there. I think we'll get, we'll, this will really, really help us in loving the insiders. 
So that chapter talks about patience. It talks about kindness. It talks about not being jealous or boastful or arrogant or rude or selfish or irritable or resentful. And all of those expressions have to do with one another, if you think about it. You, you can't be patient unless you're patient with someone. You can't be kind unless you're kind towards someone. You, you know, if you're jealous, you're jealous of someone. If you're boastful, you're boasting to someone. If you're arrogant, same thing. If you're rude, same thing. If you're selfish, well, you're selfish before someone. If you're irritable or resentful, same thing. It's always connecting with somebody. So if we apply the love chapter's template to what loving the brethren looks like today, then, then we know that loving the brethren demonstrates patience towards those who disagree with you. Are you patient with the other? It demonstrates kindness toward those who are in need of you. And I have to tell you as a pastor, I praise God for the love that's going on here at Sailorville Church. In our respective cell groups, these small groups we have, which are about a thousand people, and there are people with genuine needs, felt needs, because of the, uh, the current situation we're living with COVID. And they're ministering to, kindness is being expressed, and it blesses my life and my heart. It also demonstrates negatively not being jealous or boastful, or arrogant, or rude, or selfish, or irritable, or resentful. Those are all the negatives. By the way, if you do the math in 1 Corinthians 13, there are more negatives than there are positives when it has to do with love, which is kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. There's a lot more love is not than there is love is. And I think that's just a, that is a testimony of our human nature, to be unloving. Because in heaven, if you're going there, in heaven, Jesus, we're never going to sit at the feet of Jesus and have him say love is not because there'll be no proclivity to be unloving when we get there. But until then, we need that template superimposed upon us. All of these are toward one another. Just the other day, a pastor friend literally arrested me, gave me serious pause. I don't get to see this brother of mine. He lives in another city, but we get together at least two or three times a year. We just hang out. And we were talking about what's going on, his life, our life, Sailorville's life, the church he pastors' life. He said, he told me about his niece and her husband. They live in another state. He said, Pat, he goes, they're really hardcore anti-maskers. And uh, in fact, so much so that the whole nine yards, you know, the kids, kids rarely get it. They don't spread it. The whole nine yards. He said, uh, then my niece's five-year-old contracted MISC. Have you ever heard of that? It's rare, but it's also deadly. Brain, organs, swell. Putting these children, ages one to 14, medium age being eight, this one is five. Their lives in danger. You can look it up. But you might want to be careful before chalking it up to the extreme. This particular state has 25 cases. It's always extreme when it's somebody else's kid. They don't even know how she got it. They just know that she's clinging to life. 
Now, that just happened the other day. That is this revelation to me. Why do I say this in the context of love? Well, because of this, rare or not, could we be a bit more loving toward insiders who disagree with us and our assessments? God says, yes, we can. I say we must. We need to make that an I will. I will be more loving toward insiders because that's the kind of love God's calling us to. And we're talking about a Christian's call to get better at what we do best. I have to tell you, if you walk through the doors of Sailorville Church on any given Sunday when this place is packed, let me tell you something. You will be overwhelmed by the love of the brethren. I'm telling you that because I have been overwhelmed by it for over 20 years. It's a very loving place. But we can get better at what we do best. Here's the second thing in our pursuit. of uh, our pursuit. First, our pursuit of loving insiders. That's the first way we can get better at what we do best. And secondly, in our perception, we're giving outsiders. This is the last thing we're going to be talking about. Our perception, we're giving Outsiders. Now, by insiders, I'm talking about the, the believers, the Christian community. Outsiders are the opposite. And the Bible, at least three times in the New Testament, refers to unbelievers as outsiders. They're lost. They're unsaved. Some of you watching right now, you're in that category. You're an outsider. Right now, you're looking in, but you're still outside. You're outside the place of faith. You don't know Jesus. Maybe you're inquisitive. Maybe you're looking. Maybe you're looking for another barb to throw at us. But I know you're watching. And to the church, I would say, they are watching. They have a take. There is a perception of us. I, I always think of Mahatma Gandhi, who, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was, you know, this prime minister of India many years ago, a pacifist, who literally explored Christianity and famously or infamously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I mean, I know I've heard that expression, as many of you have, probably a hundred times. And every time I hear it or read it, I just go, ugh. Kerry Newhoff, who is a, a former lawyer, now a pastor, he does a lot of blogging, he's a, kind of a leadership guy. He says there are three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. This, is not, this isn't going to be rocket science here, but it's worth writing down. We judge, we're hypocritical, and we stink at friendships. Judge, hypocritical, and stink at friendships. We're just not good at befriending the lost. And looking at them as a person and not a prospect. Whether or not you lead, listen, whether or not you lead them to Jesus, we have a huge responsibility at getting better about the way we live out life in front of the outsider because they're watching. I mean, even, the, even in the qualifications of the pastor in 1 Timothy 3, it says he needs to have a good reputation with those who are outside. That takes time. You ought to be able to go to the neighbors around me, saved or unsaved, and, and, and ask about the Nemerses. Are they judging? Are they hypocritical? Are these some of the things that we're known for? Do we stink at friendships? And Paul says in the context of evangelism in Colossians chapter 4, he says, 
be wise with outsiders. I was thinking about this over Thanksgiving, the break here, and I hung out with my wife. We wanted to watch something that was very romantic and everything, so I chose Gladiator. Had to watch a man. We watched the Gladiator. I actually brought her sister in, and they loved it. Hadn't seen it for years. And if you're familiar with the story, you know, Maximus, uh, uh, Russell Crowe is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a Roman general who is, through a series of circumstances, becomes a slave and then a, glad, and a gladiator. And he's talking to his mas- master, Proximona, in one of the famous uh, lines of the movie. Maximus is going to go into the theater to be a gladiator, and, and uh, he, he also wants his freedom. And Proximo says to him, he says, if, you're, if, you, wanna, if you want your freedom, you've got to win the crowd. And he says this, win the crowd, and you'll win your freedom. Well, what do you know? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I by all means might win some, save some. To the Jew, I become a Jew that I might win the Jew. To those who are without the law, I become as one without the law. Not being without the law myself, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those without the law. It's all about winning. We win the crowd. The crowd in this context are the outsiders who are naturally predisposed against us, against Christ, against the truth. And you'll win win them and you'll win their respect. Win their respect and you might gain an audience. Take the current state of affairs with COVID-19. If the outsider respects a position more than the person who presents it, that person will lose his or her opportunity to win. To win them to the greater cause. Not their position, but the person of Jesus Christ. I have a friend who surfs the blogosphere of contrarians. To Christianity, you know, the other guys, some of you that are watching right now, you know, the God-haters, the Christ-haters, the atheists, those turned off by Christianity and all of our hypocrisy. And this guy, who this is where he spends all of his time. He sent me a short list of things being said by outsiders who despise us, not Sailorville necessarily, but just the church in general. And I've... Uh, I've, you know, I've, I've expunged this of some of the profanity. But here's one. Christian Fundy's pulling this, we're going to defy quarantine because God can protect us. Blankety blank. Need to reflect on the fact that in their own holy book, quote, jump off that cliff. God will save you. You, you. you know he can. It was literally how Satan tempted Christ because it's a sin to do so. That's, that's what one retract, uh, detractor said. Somebody feeding off of that response said this, Satan also offered Jesus political power in exchange for bending the knee. Jesus rejected the deal, but since then, plenty of his followers have bent the knee at the mere hint of power, real or imagined. This is what they're saying about us. And by the way, it's not just non-believers, and there was a lot more than this. But it's ex-believers. I know there isn't such thing, but those who were raised in... A Christian home, maybe a good church, as this one writer who writes for the Atlantic Journal uh, in a very cleverly titled article titled, Christians in America are failing the coronavirus test. 
pretty clever. He says this, I'm no longer surprised when trolls I encounter on Twitter include a, a sentimental religious identifier like Christ follower, quote unquote, in their profile. But I never predicted that I would witness prominent Christian leaders dismissing death. Now listen carefully what I'm going to say here because I'm bringing this to a conclusion. Whether you want to argue their position, debate their statistics, or simply dismiss them as ill-informed outsiders, you can't dismiss, we can't dismiss, they're crafting a perception of us. Let me say that again. Whether you want to argue their position, debate their statistics, or simply dismiss them as ill-informed outsiders, we can't dismiss. They are crafting a perception of us. Now, in verse 11, look at it. Would you please look at verse 11 again? He says, Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly, verse 12, before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. Now, in verse 11, all of those exhortations are in the Greek are in the present tense. Paul is saying, if we're going to win the crowd, then we have to win their respect. And if we win their respect, we might gain an audience with them. How, how do you do it? How do you win the crowd? He makes it real simple. By leading a quiet life. Minding your own business. Working with your own hands. That's what you got to do. That's what we have to do. That, that, this, is, this is not stuff we spend a lot of time thinking about. Let's just look at him quickly. Live quietly. I mean, I could go all, go all day without reading that. I'm with my wife a couple years ago, and I said, honey, I know where, I know where we're at right now. I'll, I'll use my inside voice. She goes, honey, you have no inside voice. I didn't appreciate that, okay? But here's the saving grace in this context. Paul isn't referring to volume. <laughs> He's telling them to be less panicky, not less passionate. Less Martha, more Mary. And, and truthfully, as a pastor, this is my greatest concern, that we, a lot of us, not, maybe not a lot of us, but some of us are more like Martha than Mary. We're, we're we're frenetic, we're running around, we're frantic, we're, 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 we're just going here, we're going there, we're saying this, we're, we're, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And we're not enough like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in his word, drinking it in, and not just in little snippets, but drawing, taking big drafts of the word of God and letting it flow over our minds and our hearts and our spirits. Less Martha, more Mary. He says, mind your own affairs, mind your own business. Now, God wants us to do better at what we do best. That's an expression I made up a, a long time ago. But there's another expression that folks around here are used to hearing from me after I quote an obscure passage or something. I'll say, have you ever read that? But I can't take credit for that expression, though I do own it. I was actually at a conference with the great now with the Lord Elizabeth Elliot, when she read this very passage, and I'll never forget her saying, aspire 
to live a quiet life and mind your own business. And then she looked up and she said, have you ever read that? I remember just being, oh, just tattooed with that. I don't think she probably ever said it again in her whole life, but I've been saying it repeatedly. Mind your own business. I read the other day about a kid that was sitting at a, on a park bench. Actually, it wasn't a kid. He was a young man, all ripped out, powerful. And he was knocking down chocolates one after another. And another guy, he didn't know, walks up to him and says, you know, if you keep doing that, you're going to gain a bunch of weight. Your, your teeth are going to rot. And you might even get, you know, onset of, of, of uh, diabetes. And the young guy looks at him and goes, hey, my grandma lived to be 107. To which the guy responded, he, he looked at him and goes, because she was always eating chocolate? He goes, no, because she was always minding her own business. Boom. I think we could probably do better at this. Minding our own business. This is what God is telling us to do. And our perception, helping with the perception that outsiders have of us. They don't look at us as minding our own business very often. He says, work with your hands. Don't be dependent on anyone. In Greek culture, remember, this was, a Greek, this was the Greek peninsula. This is where the intelligentsia comes. This is where Athens and, and all of the, you know, the philosophers came out of. In Greek culture, manual labor was exclusively for slaves, but not in Hebrew culture. And this is, a, this is coming over from, from the Hebrew mindset to be to work, get your hands dirty. Don't be afraid to do that. They valued hard labor. Now, keep in mind, these every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians concludes with some reference to the coming of Jesus. We're going to take it on full on next week. And I'm so excited about the, the, this passage on the rapture. But these Thessalonians were so enamored with the return of Jesus, apparently some of them quit working. They just started to become lazy. And he's saying, don't, don't do that. This is the reason men like D.L. Moody said that some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I like what Martin Luther once said. He said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant an apple tree today. That's a person who's not so enamored with the future that he's not helpful in the present. And this is a big deal. He takes us on in chapter 5 and verse 14. And he is, in fact, in his last communication with the Thessalonians, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, hopefully, or 2 Thessalonians 3, in verses 6 through 15, you can look that on your own. He concludes his communication with them with an entire section on being productive in your walk with God rather than being lazy. God wants us to do better at what we do best. And in some cases, he just wants us to do better. Why? Because the insiders are wanting. They're wanting unconditional love. Because the outsiders are watching. They're watching for an unhypocritical life. If we can live this unfrazzled life, minding our own business, working and serving others, we'll win them. We'll win their respect. And maybe an audience. And if you're listening right now as an unbeliever, you're one of those outsiders looking in, I'm sorry. 
I apologize. I repent before you for any hypocrisy you have seen in me or anyone represented in the church in general, and particularly Sailorville Church. We don't want to come off that way. We want you to understand that we are, we're, we're vessels, but we're cracked vessels. We're not, we don't always put a good product out there like we'd like to. And to whatever degree we have failed you, please forgive us. Because Jesus never will. Our Savior never will. Jesus came to this earth for you. Jesus died on a cross for you. Jesus rose from a hole in the ground for you because he loved you that much with unconditional God-like love because he was God. He is God. He ever will be God, and he could be your God if you'll trust him today as your Lord and Savior. Then become an insider. Maybe help us out with this mess, you know, our own hypocrisy. You know, one more hypocrite, you know, won't make any difference around here anyway, huh? We're all screw-ups in one way or another. But I'm serious. I want you to think deeply about this. We just let you in on some of the ongoings, the things that we ought to pursue as Christians and getting better at what we do best, getting better at loving one another, and getting better at the way we're perceived on the outside. So would you join us? It'll last forever, and you'll never be sorry. And for the rest of you in the house of God, God help us to love our insiders greater and live before outsiders wiser. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, that, that is our prayer. Please cleanse us. Please forgive us. Please make us whole through the blood of your son Jesus. Please forgive us of our hypocrisy, of our spiritual myopia, concerned only about ourselves sometimes and not thinking about the perception of the world around us. Lord, there are real issues going on in our world. And this virus, which has affected the world, may be greater than we perceive it, might be less great than we perceive it. It doesn't matter. Our love for you must be perceived as real from those who are outside and certainly as genuine from those who are inside. So give us that inside-out love for you and for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.